Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, once again we thank you for today. We thank you for all the paths you've led us on that have brought us to this point right here, right now. To once again come to your word and, and for us to glean from the riches of its treasure. So Lord, I pray that there would be nothing between us and you and that your truth may be buried deep within us and change our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many games that we all grew up playing as at friends' birthday parties or even our own birthday parties as kids. You have pin the tail on the donkey, right? We have hitting a pinata, but one that all of us probably played at one point or another as a kid was the telephone game. You may know what I'm talking about, the telephone game. The game where a bunch of kids would sit in a circle and one kid would think of a simple phrase and whisper it in the ear of the kid next to them who would whisper it into the ear of the next kid after that and so forth and so on. What would always happen by the time the message got to the last kid in the circle? Well, sometimes it would be distorted and not make any sense and usually be pretty funny. But sometimes that message would be pretty close if not pretty much the same exact message as the original phrase, with just a few minor changes. And this second description of the outcome of a round of the telephone game is especially pertinent to our discussion on our third round of specific spiritual gifts, and especially to the first one uh, on our list today, uh, the one that we'll be covering, the gift of prophecy. Over the first few weeks, or over the past few weeks, we've been discussing Paul's mentioning of different spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. Starting out with a source and purpose for spiritual gifts, that is for the unity, benefit, and building up of the church. We talked about the first two gifts, those of word of wisdom and word of knowledge, and that even though these could be considered non-miraculous gifts, they are still greatly necessary to the growth of the church. If you remember, I noted that the church can only spiritually grow as much as those in the church with these gifts are actually using them to help others, especially those newer to the faith, grow in their faith. Last week we talked about the gifts of great faith, of healing, and the working of miracles. We talked about how they're not to be seen as these weird, out-there experiences that those who have abused them have sometimes made them out to be. How they are to be seen in a quite down-to-earth way is that when you pray, for instance, if you have a strong subjective confidence that what you pray for will happen, you have the gift of great faith. If when you pray for healing for those who are in physical suffering and you're seeing a greater percentage of those people being healed, whether through medicine or a miracle, you have the gift of healing. If when you pray for miraculous deliverance from danger for yourself or someone else or casting out of demonic forces or you pray for the miraculous rescue of believers and missionaries from persecution, and any of these happen in a miraculous or an uncommon way, you have the gift of working miracles. There's a lot more to the discussion about these gifts. That's just a very brief description. And if you missed this mes that message on this last week, I encourage you to watch or listen to that on our, on our website or podcast platforms. That goes a lot more deeply into those things. But today, we're only going to be focusing on the next miraculous gift on this list, the gift of prophecy. 
Just one today. Not that big of a deal, right? <laughs> like healing and miracles, like we've already discussed, the gift of prophecy is confusing and has been the source of much controversy in the church around the world. Hopefully today we'll have a much better understanding of the gift of prophecy and its use in the church. Like I mentioned last week, between last week and this week, I'm going to be heavily relying on the views of theologian Dr. Wayne Grudem, whose views on these gifts are the most logical, down-to-earth, and most importantly, thoroughly biblical. So the first point that we come to this morning, uh, as we work our way through just this one gift, is the scriptural evidence of this and our understanding of it. When we think of New Testament prophecy and New Testament prophets, we need to see that they are something totally different from the Old Testament prophets. That's what we have, to, we have to start out with. When we think of New Testament prophecy and New Testament prophets, we need to see that they are something totally different from the Old Testament prophets. We need to take that connection that we might have had in our mind and toss it out the window. That's where we need to start. There is Old Testament prophecy given by Old Testament prophets, and that is completely different from how the New Testament deals with the word prophecy. Here's why. Old Testament prophets spoke for God. They were God's mouthpieces who spoke the very words of God. That's why they often, very often, prefaced their messages with what? Thus says the Lord, right? Likewise, those prophets who wrote the Old Testament books wrote down the very words of God as Scripture. Jeremiah wrote, Then the Lord reached out and touched my mouth and said, Look, I have put my words in your mouth. This understanding was so strong that to disobey the words of an Old Testament prophet meant to disobey the very words of God. Prophets spoke the words of God to the nation of Israel throughout the entirety of its history, even through the time of their exile in Babylon. Then all of a sudden, as recorded in the Old Testament, then all of a sudden we have no record of prophets speaking the words of God after the prophet Malachi. We have no record whatsoever of any prophets speaking the word of God after Malachi. There's a period of about 400 years between the giving of the words of Malachi and before John the Baptist starts prophesying about Jesus. Known, and this, this 400 year period is known as the intertestamental period of silence. That's what it's called. Because God was silent for, for, for all intents and purposes through this 400 years. I often wondered why this period of silence from God even existed. But I wonder if part of the reason was to end, put a definite end to the Old Testament period understanding of what prophets were and what prophecy was. That came to an end. The reason for that was, is that as we move into the New Testament, we see a new word being used for those who are moved by the very Spirit of, of God to write down His words as the New Testament books of Scripture. You would think that word would continue to be prophet, right? Since that's what the word was who, for those who wrote the Old Testament books. You would think that word would continue to be prophet, since though, that was how those who wrote the Old Testament books were known as. But it's not. 
the word used throughout the New Testament for those who carried out the mission of Jesus and wrote down what God wanted them to write down as his words is apostle. That's the new word that's used in the New Testament. In other words, the apostles are the New Testament version of the Old Testament prophets. That's what gives them the authority to give instruction and write down what God told them to write down as Scripture. When Paul wrote his letter to the churches in Galatia, he stressed only one thing. Not that he was a prophet, but that he was what? That he was an apostle. The only reason he could write with authority, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you, is because this letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Paul already wrote to the Corinthians in appealing for them to listen to his instruction. Even if others think I am not an apostle, I certainly am to you. You yourselves are proof that I am the Lord's apostle. This is what he's stressing over and over and over again. Not that he's a prophet, but that he's an apostle. And it wasn't just Paul who made this distinction between the spiritual authority of the prophets of the Old Testament and the spiritual authority of the apostles in the New Testament. Peter also wrote, I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. I don't know if there's any clearer reference to this understanding than this verse right here. Prophets long ago, there's a distinction. That ended, and now Jesus is, is commanding through the apostles in the New Testament. So what this also means is that the New Testament apostles who are described as prophets in the, in the not, or, I'm sorry. So what this means is that it's the New Testament apostles, not those who are described as prophets in the New Testament, who have the authority to write God's words as scripture. It's the apostles, not those who are re referenced as prophets in the New Testament. Those who have the gift of prophecy that Paul references in our verse today, in, 2 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 12, are not the same as the Old Testament prophets. They are not New Testament apostles. And therefore, they do not have the authority as either the Old Testament prophets nor the New Testament apostles. And therefore, do not speak the very words of God. So, when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you can read along with me, verse 10, that one of the gifts is, and to another prophecy, what is this gift? What is the New Testament gift of prophecy? Well, in order to understand this, we need to understand something else first. Something changed in between Malachi and John the Baptist. Something changed in that time period. Not only did God stop speaking to humans for a period of time, but something cultural changed. By the time John the Baptist showed up and Jesus started preaching and calling his apostles to spread his message of truth and love, the cultural understanding of the word prophet and what that meant had changed. 
Somewhere in that 400 years of God's silence, the word prophet changed from the one who speaks the very words of God and has the same authority to all sorts of different things. By the time Jesus walked the earth, prophet just meant one who has some kind of spiritual external influence and therefore speaks messages. That's what the meaning had changed to by the time Jesus walked the earth. We see this understanding, you'll you'll see what I mean. Most clearly when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus reveals to her that he knows that the man she's currently cohabitating with is not her husband, and her response is this, Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Furthermore, now what did she mean by this? Furthermore, the realization that Jesus was a prophet did not cause her, when she says, sir, you must be a prophet, she's not trembling with fear that she was in the presence of one who had the same authority as God. What she's realizing is that this man knows different things. So, what that does is that merely sparks her to ask him another question she wanted an answer to. She didn't tremble when she says you must be a prophet. In her mind, she's not thinking, this is a prophet from the Old Testament who spoke the very words of God, so I should be trembling in fear because he just told me that I was sinning. What she's thinking is, oh, he knows different things. He just revealed something about me that he shouldn't have known. So therefore, he knows different things, and he can reveal different things, so I'm going to ask him another question. And she asks him some off-the-topic question about where they should worship God, either in Samaria or in Jerusalem. She certainly didn't understand Jesus as a prophet in the Old Testament way, but in this culturally changed way. Paul reflects this culturally changed way when he refers to the thoroughly pagan Greek philosopher Epimenides as a prophet of the pagan Gentiles in the book of Titus. And he says, even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, the people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. Obviously, Paul does not mean the same word as an Old Testament prophet. He would have not referred to a thoroughly pagan Gentile as a prophet of God. He just simply wouldn't have done that. Obviously, Paul clearly did not mean that Epimenides was a prophet of Almighty God, who spoke the very words of God. But he's using this newly culturally changed understanding of what prophet meant at that point. We also have further scriptural evidence that prophets and prophecy in the New Testament <coughs> do not have the same authority as the very words of God and the words of Scripture given to the apostles. In Acts 21.4 we read, that, uh, We went ashore, found the local believers, and stayed with them a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. Keep that in mind. There are believers, where they go, that are prophesying, even through the Holy Spirit, that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. Why? Why are they prophesying this? Because we find out later that that prophecy indicated that Paul would be arrested and handed over to the Gentiles for judgment. But what was Paul's response? Paul's response is this. Why all this weeping? You are breaking my heart. 
I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And then what does Luke record for us what Paul did? After this, we packed our things and left for Jerusalem. Now what was the prophecy? That he shouldn't go to Jerusalem. And Paul went anyway. I am 100% positive that if this New Testament prophecy, even confidently given through the Holy Spirit, which we read, carried the same weight as the Old Testament understanding of the very words and authority of God, Paul would not have blatantly disobeyed it. He understood it, but he went to Jerusalem anyway. So what does this further teach us about New Testament prophecy? Similarly, we also find out about this New Testament prophetic experience. Several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, The Holy Spirit declares, So shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. Agabus got this prophecy almost right, but not quite. Almost right, but not quite. We read further on that when Paul arrived in Jerusalem following this prophecy, that it was the Roman Gentiles, see he says that he will be bound by the Jewish leaders, but really he's bound by the Roman Gentiles, not the Jewish leaders. Not only that, but the Jewish leaders didn't want to bind Paul, they wanted to kill him. The Romans had to bind him in order to rescue him and save his life. So again, we'll see what this further explains about New Testament prophecy in a minute. But further, Paul will instruct the Corinthian church in this same letter that we're taking this verse out of. Let two or three people prophesy, and let the others, the rest of the people in the church, evaluate what is said. This evaluation implies that the Corinthians were to weigh what was said and determine what should be listened to according to what seemed to match up the best across the two to three prophecies. If New Testament prophecy was the very words of God <coughs> excuse me, with the very same authority and infallibility as Old Testament prophecy, there's no way that Paul could instruct or would instruct in good conscience and under the scriptural inspiration of the Holy Spirit for them to evaluate it. For them to think about, okay, let's see what we should take from this and listen to. If it carried the same weight as the authority of the very words of God that Old Testament prophecy was. So what does all of this New Testament scriptural evidence tell us about how we should see the gift of prophecy and using the gift of prophecy that Paul mentions in our New Testament verse today? That comes to our second point here. Definition. What is New Testament prophecy? Firstly, New Testament prophecy does not equal the authority of the apostles and of scripture. So what does that mean today? Since all the apostles died out 2,000 years ago, the New Testament gift of prophecy and prophetic messages does not equal the authority of Scripture. 
In some churches today, prophecy and scripture are, are on, either on the same level, or prophecy is even above it. But according to the Bible, prophecy is never anywhere close to the authority of scripture. It's always under it. It's always sub- subject to the authority of scripture. At the end of Paul's life, even as he was well aware of this spiritual gift of prophecy, he'd written about it, he talked about it, and that many in churches all around the ancient world were using this gift, and he knew he was facing execution. He tells his protege, Timothy, all Scripture. He doesn't focus on prophecy. He focuses on Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. And that is what is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what he focuses on. Scripture is above everything else, including prophecy. That's it. No prophecy given in this church age, this New Testament age, usurps what is already in Scripture. It's not above what is already found in Scripture. It certainly does not take the place of Scripture. That's why Paul immediately follows these verses up with, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. This is what he implores him. Preach the word of God. That's it. Don't focus on prophecy. Preach the word of God. So, again, what is the gift of prophecy? What does the New Testament mean when it talks about using the gift of prophecy to give prophecies for the church's benefit? When it talks about it as a gift. From everything we've seen in the New Testament about church age prophecy, it could be defined as this as a spontaneous thing that God brings to one's mind that that person then reports in his or her own words. I'll say that again. A spontaneous thing that God brings to one's mind that that person then reports in his or her own words. Another word for prophecy could be a revelation. God reveals a certain thing whether in an image or a strong sense of something to someone's mind that that person strongly feels is from God. Agabus, whom we talked about, who had the gift of prophecy, most likely had an image in his mind brought to him by the Holy Spirit of Paul being bound and surrounded by Jewish leaders and Gentiles. So then what Agabus did with this image is he then interpreted that image to mean in human logic that it made sense it would be the Jewish leaders who would first bind Paul and then hand him over to the jurisdiction of the Romans to do their dirty work. That's what makes the most sense in Agabus' interpretation of that image. After all, wasn't that the exact same thing that happened to Jesus? So Agabus interprets this image and reports it. See, there's a major difference between the image or a sense or a vision or even the dream that God gives and the human interpretation and verbal delivery of that image, sense, vision, or dream. This, the, the prophetic revelation... From God, what he reveals, the revelation from God, 
is pure, trustworthy, and infallible. It's the human interpretation and verbal delivery of that revelation known as prophecy that's imperfect. Like we talked about before, with the changed cultural understanding of the word prophecy, Paul uses that new cultural understanding in his description of the gift of prophecy. Prophecy, like how it was already generally understood by people from every kind of background who'd be reading these letters, whether Jewish or pagan Gentile, described the humanly interpreted and verbal message. When you read the gift of prophecy, that's what he's referring to. The human interpreted and verbal message. Revelation was something different. Revelation was the original and pure image, sense, vision, or dream directly from God. You guys see the difference? We even see this distinction between the two described in Scripture as well when Paul says, but if someone is prophesying, giving the verbal description, the verbal message, and another person receives a revelation that pure image from God, from the Lord, the one who is speaking, doing the prophesying, must stop. There's a distinction between the two. So we talked about the scriptural evidence for New Testament prophecy. We talked about the definition of New Testament prophecy, church age prophecy. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the use. Think about Imagine how quickly the gift of prophecy would get out of hand. The potential for that. If there was not regulation of its use. That's exactly why Paul instructs these very same Corinthians and a little further up into the letter, let two or three people prophesy and let the others evaluate what is said. But if someone is prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. In this way, all who prophesy, giving that verbal message, will have a turn to speak, one after the other, so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. This is not a chaotic experience. For God is not a God of disorder, but He's a God of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. Prophecy should never be given in a disorderly, chaotic way. Like I mentioned before, this instruction gives regulation so things don't get out of hand. Evaluation is always part of the equation before acceptance is made. Evaluation is always part of the equation before acceptance is made. Is there more than one person who is giving a similar revelation? Well, that helps confirm the first prophecy. Not only that, but the giving of prophecy will never, ever be accompanied by out-of-control behavior or chaos. That's not the way that God works. Since God is a God of order, and since He's the one giving the revelation, He will not permit His revelation to be verbalized in those ways and only in an orderly way. In this way, God is glorified and the church is benefited. Paul says earlier on, prophecy, however, is for the benefit of the church, of believers, not unbelievers. Why? 
because it promotes things God wants to be revealed to a specific person in the church or to the church as a whole. Verbally giving messages of what God has impressed on your mind not only benefits the church, but it also benefits any unbeliever who happens to walk in. They don't think anyone is crazy because things may be revealed and verbalized about their own sin and make them glorify God as well. Paul says, but if all of you are prophesying and unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your meeting, they will be convicted of sin and judged by what you say. As they listen, their secret thoughts will be exposed. They'll start to hear things that they're thinking, there's no way anybody else should know this. And they will fall to their knees and worship God, declaring God is truly here among you. So in either case, believers or unbelievers, prophecy is beneficial to giving God glory in the church. In fact, anything that is edifying or profitable for the church to hear about and given through a spontaneous revelation should be shared as prophecy. Paul also writes, but one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. It's important. It has a strong place in the church. Prophecy must always be regulated and evaluated by sound doctrinal teaching as well, though. You want to know what prophecy's purpose in that then is? In that way, objective and perhaps impersonal teaching on doctrine is perhaps enlivened by personal revelation and prophecy. So, is there a place for the gift of prophecy today? Absolutely. As I mentioned last week, Paul does does clearly note a little further on when all of the spiritual gifts, both non-miraculous and the miraculous, such as prophecy, will cease. And he clearly notes that, and that is the return of Christ. They simply will no longer be needed, and love will be the only thing that will continue on for eternity. However, that does not speak to the frequency of specific today to, the, to today's discussion, the gift of of prophecy, depending on the area of the world where the gospel presence is or isn't, or what is most beneficial to the church. But if you feel like you have the gift of prophecy, use it for the benefit and encouragement of our church as revelation from God to our church. Perhaps a time such as prayer meeting on Wednesday nights is a good time to listen to those God-revealed promptings in your prayer and make them known in verbal prayer. Because when we pray, we're, we're receiving promptings from God anyways. Perhaps there are revelations you have received from God that we need to hear as a church for our conviction, for our strengthening in the mission of the gospel, for our encouragement and our walk with the Lord, for our empowerment against the forces of the enemy, or for our comfort. But we're not hearing them. Don't be afraid to use it. Always subject it to the truth, teaching, and preaching of Scripture, but never be afraid to use it. Our church can benefit greatly from the, revel- from the revelations God has given you to edify us. Because you know why? It shows the Holy Spirit is moving. It shows we have the resurrection power of Christ. It shows we have the eternal and abundant life we've already been given. 
And it shows not only that we have a faith in the Word of God, but also in the living God who is with us every single day and who wrote it and indwells us and moves within us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift of prophecy. I thank you for its benefit for the church, for strengthening and emboldening and comforting. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who has that gift of prophecy, I pray that they would start using it. That they would, if, they haven't, if, they, if they're not now, that they would start coming out to prayer meeting and, and sharing that gift, praying through those promptings that you reveal to them so that we may be all encouraged and strengthened. Lord, we thank you that you have a place for this, that this is a way that you communicate to us, that Scripture is above all else, but there are times that you will reveal different things that we need to hear specific to anybody in our church or specific to the church itself. So Lord, I pray that your power would go forth, your spirit would move, and that prophecy would be given. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.